Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, it is a loaded show. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to Brianne Kirkpatrick, a genetic counselor who helps people who have discovered secrets in their family past through DNA tests, and also counsels people who are keeping secrets and are looking to reveal them. Plus, we'll talk to McKenna Cooper from Legacy Tree Genealogists about free sites to help you with your Eastern European research. And Melanie McComb helps us out with Ask Us Anything talking about passport applications. What information's in them? How do you get them? She'll have the answers. That's all this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect. A presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You have found us. It's Extreme Genes, America's family history show. I am your congenial host, Fisher, on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. And this episode is brought to you by BYU TV's Relative Race in Season 6 right now, Sunday nights at 8 o'clock Eastern, 5 o'clock Pacific. Boy, we've got a show loaded with information today. Starting in about 10 minutes, I'm going to be visiting with Brianne Kirkpatrick. She is a genetic counselor, and she has a lot to say about people who are dealing with the discovery of secrets and those who are keeping secrets. You're going to want to hear that coming up. And then later in the show, Eastern Europe, free sites for you to get to that can help you break open some of your lines there. And right now, let's head out to Boston, Massachusetts and talk to my good friend, the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. It is David Allen Lambert. What you got for us this week, David? Well, I'll tell you, ExtremeGenes.com has got some really interesting stories this week. Yes, it does. The first one goes out to Beantown, where the late Sonny and Brenna Hurwitz have died. Now, this happened a while back, and their daughter, a couple of years ago, Julie Lawson, took a DNA test. And she also persuaded her sister Frida to take one, too. What they found out is not your typical results. Both parents had an affair. Yeah, and what's interesting about this is that the one daughter found out that there was a half-brother, but the other sister didn't share that half-brother. Mm-hmm. Why? That meant mom had an affair, which produced her, and then the older sister who initiated all this found out dad had an affair and produced this other child. And so the one now has gone and met her birth father, which kind of annoyed the other I mean, it's been a mess, and you got to read about it on the website ExtremeGenes.com. It really does open up a lot of the psychological issues that happen when families are merged together. You're just never expecting some of these results. You're expecting to find your family tree and not a new half-brother. Right. Or, or birth father for a sister. That's true. That's true. And I can tell you that the brother looks just like the dad. Yeah, he sure does. <laughs> you know, we take for granted the furniture that we have in our homes, and sometimes furniture comes over from the old country. In London, England, there is a great little piece on furniture makers. Over 2,750 furniture makers are being layered in a map dealing with London from 1640 to 1914. And what's really interesting about this is the application of this type of website with the maps and showing where they were located is applicable for genealogists. 
you could go through and if they mapped out or all the locations, say, where the butchers were living, or all the location where the weavers were living. How amazing that would be based on censuses of England, or even, for that matter, America. You are right about that. In fact, York is famous for their butchers, and there was a little street, a narrow street, where often a lot of the waste from the animals was out there sitting or running through the streets, and that would be very interesting to see where some people's ancestry was at that time. I remember going to York. Some of the windows were so close together you could shake hands with your neighbors the way they tipped in. <laughs> That's true. Well, staying in England for a little bit for Family History News, we're not entirely sure about the identity, but I can tell you that another hero from World War One has been interred. Recently, in 2017, a body was found during work in France, obviously a soldier, because it was near a battlefield, and he has now been buried in a new military cemetery in France. He's of unknown name and also of an unknown regiment, but where he was located would probably indicate he was of the British forces. Wow. Isn't that something? We're still finding these people 100 years later, and what I like about it is they're still getting the care that they deserve. Yeah, the Commonwealth Graves Commission is amazing, and I keep on seeing these news stories popping up, and I'm always glad to share them. You know, Halloween, what can we buy a relative? Well, for my kids, it's always they figure out their own costume, but maybe Dad now has a new one. There is a website called GearHuman.com, and it is amazing. They're making these hoodies fish with Revolutionary War uniforms, Civil War, Teddy <laughs> Roosevelt, that. Napoleon. So you could go as your favorite historical figure from your ancestor. Imagine going to the Sons of the American Revolution wearing a hoodie from George Washington's uniform with epaulets. It's kind of fun. Ooh, I like <laughs> the sound of that. Well, the next story kind of puts a close on my family history news. The Ministry of Antiquities and the Republic of Egypt. They have recently found over a dozen sealed coffins we would know as mummy cases. And these are all intact. They haven't been opened up. They haven't been pilfered. So you know what that means? They found people's ancestors. And they may, by using the DNA of the enamel on the teeth, be able to determine if they have some relatives in the area. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's incredible. Well, that's all I have from Beantown this week. And just a quick shout-out to all of our friends in Iowa. I lectured at the Iowa Genealogical Society. They send their love. Oh, I love that. That's great. Back at you, Iowa Genealogical Society. And, David, next week we want to get a full report on what happened in London with Roots Tech over there. The first one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to giving you all the details. All right, my friend. You know, it seems like every time a story comes up about somebody getting surprise DNA results, there's often a quote in that story from my next guest, Brianne Kirkpatrick. She's a genetic counselor. She's a writer. She's the founder of Watershed DNA. And Brianne, last time we talked, I think you were the only person in the field that was a genetic counselor. And I think you still are. You are certainly the queen. Well, thank you. Yes, I'm um, still the only genetic counselor that's specializing in this area. Hopefully that will change at some point. I definitely think that there's a need and demand for somebody who can kind of be the point person when one of these surprises comes out and figure out what does somebody need, how do we get them the support that they need, and, and things like that. Now, we were talking off air as we were setting this up, and you were telling me there have been a couple of changes since we last talked, uh, I want to say a couple of years ago, that you've seen, that you've observed. And what are those? Yeah, so um, I've noticed that I'm getting contact from more people that are uh, maybe not 
directly affected by the DNA discovery, other people in the family. So, for example, I've had you know, wives of biological fathers or birth fathers who've reached out for support and information, also newly discovered siblings who didn't know they had an adopted sibling in the family, even children of people who are involved in a DNA family surprise. And most interestingly, I've had a couple sets of parents who have been keeping a secret from their child about that, that child's paternity and have decided that it's time to share the news with their child but aren't really sure, you know, how do we do this? We've been keeping this secret for so long. So I've just noticed that because of how many people are affected by even just one DNA surprise, there's a lot of people who are looking for and, and needing support. You are absolutely right about that, and having seen it firsthand among some friends and people in my own circle who have been affected by it, it's an impactful thing to make that discovery, and I don't know how you deal with that every day. Let me ask you this. You know, we've seen kind of a leveling off now of, uh, of the DNA tests that are being taken. Are we seeing a leveling off right now of some of the surprises that have come along, or are we still seeing an explosion of that? I do think that we will continue to see surprises being discovered. And, you know, I kind of expect that it will only increase because sometimes it's not immediately apparent to a person who's done a DNA test that maybe they aren't matching their family the way that they always thought. And as people become more experienced with you know, the DNA matching databases and genetic genealogy in general, uh, some of the surprises that have kind of been there for a while are going to be discovered. You know, some clients have reached out to me and said, I did my test two years ago, but it wasn't until my sister did her test at Christmas that we realized we're, we're half-siblings and not full-siblings. Right. So, um, I, yeah, I, I, I don't think we've seen a leveling off of the surprises, no. Wow. There are so many complications with these unexpected discoveries, you know, because nothing's changed and yet everything's changed because it goes right to the core of your identity and your roots. What do you tell people when they make a discovery, say, for instance, that their father wasn't their father? So I make sure people realize that they're, they're not alone in discovering what they have and uh, for feeling the way that they do, because I've realized a lot of people initially think, you know, I'm the only one, I'm so alone in this. And when I let them know that there are support groups that are available, there's a nonprofit called NTE Friends that has developed because of the need for um, people who make a discovery to realize that they're not alone. So I make sure to, you know, validate the way that they're feeling and help them realize that there are ways to get through it. And it's being experienced as a traumatic discovery, a traumatic situation for a lot of people. So helping them connect with a therapist or a counselor that specializes in trauma and, and helping people through these traumatic discoveries is a really key component to helping people get through it. So you mentioned earlier you got calls from parents who were saying we were thinking it's time to reveal the secret. And I would assume part of the reason that they would want to do that is because of the fact that DNA tests could ultimately out them and then they no longer control the narrative, right? 
I mean, it's uh, one thing to say, right. okay, I'm going to shock you by telling you the truth. It's another thing to be found out that you've been keeping it a secret. And that's much more devastating to somebody, I think, to realize that there's been something of a betrayal, right, of trust with parents. What, what do you tell? Exactly, because the parent-child relationship really depends on a foundation of trust. And, yes. And so when that trust is broken, you know, where do you go from there? And the good news is that it is possible to rebuild that trust, but I do recommend parents to, number one, get on the same page. So if, you know, husband and wife or partners are not on the same page about sharing the news with their child yet, I recommend they work with a couples therapist. And I've done some coaching of parents through writing a letter to share the news with their child. And both of those couples have been working with a couples therapist. So I think it's important that, number one, parents are on the same page. And number two, that there's kind of a balance of urgency in sharing the news because DNA tests can out it at any point. But also, you know, making sure that they are on the same page and have thought about how they want to communicate and what they want to tell their child in terms of how much detail to go into versus just sharing news and and things like that. Well, and I would imagine that's the whole point of writing a letter. You can choose your words. You can kind of control it because it's not a conversation. It's not full of emotion. You're thinking it through very, very carefully to kind of set the stage for what's going on there, right? Right. And with a letter um, compared to a phone call or just bringing it on a person, it gives the parents a chance to make sure that they say everything they want to say instead of kind of being caught off guard or in a panic, using words that really don't communicate what they want to say. Sure, sure. So, um, so far it's worked pretty well, and there's no one-size-fits-all to these situations. Every family is different, and every relationship is different. Secrets is a matter of when a secret might come out, not a matter of if at this point in time. Yep. And I, I don't want that to panic people, but on the other hand, there is that sense of urgency that depending on how you want a secret to come out, you can either um, take active steps towards that or maybe passively just begin to be prepared. Yeah, I had a friend uh, and I had to inform her that her father wasn't her father a couple of years ago, and it was very traumatic. It took a year to tell her siblings. And to this day, she still hasn't told her oldest son because he was really close to her dad, who has since passed. She was a middle child, you know, like third or fourth out of six. So she was very angry at her mom and also angry at the birth father, you know, for getting in the middle of the family, even though that's the person who actually gave her life. So it's a very complex thing psychologically. And, you know, I tell her, you know, you can control the narrative as far as what you tell your son at some point. But when cousins come to realize perhaps he doesn't match or something like this or or doesn't match you or they hear about it or they figure it out from your aunts and uncles, then you've lost control of the narrative. And that could be maybe even worse as far as the relationship goes. Yeah, and I noticed that there's a lot of fears about the what if and a lot of those what ifs never come to pass and what I've learned from working with clients of all the different positions in a family is that you know it takes time you can't really speed up the process very much 
but working with a counselor or being part of a support group, mm. those are all ways to help while time is passing to adjust to you know, a new idea of what family is and a new idea of your, your own identity or the identity of other people in your family. So I do want to encourage people to know that it, it will get better. It does get better and families adjust. It's a new normal, a new reality, but they can do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely they can. And we've seen it over and over and over again. If you were going to recommend a place where people can get support quickly, easily, inexpensively, where's the best place to go? Uh, the support groups on Facebook are free. So a couple of them on Facebook, if you search for DNA Surprise or MPE Friends. There are also some websites. There's Severance Magazine, severancemag.com is another place I send people to. And then if they are interested in connecting with a counselor or therapist to work with near them, psychologytoday.com has a search tool where you can search for a therapist in your network, in your location. And those would be my top recommendations. There are some sites, I mean, that have, what, over 5,000 people in them on Facebook. So all there to help each other. And it's usually closed, is it not? Yes, so the groups are closed. Some of them are secret, meaning um, you can't even see the groups exist unless you know about them and have access to the gatekeepers. So there's various levels of privacy, but closed groups, the comments can't be seen. Secret groups, the members can't even be seen except by those within it. Awesome stuff. She's Brianne Kirkpatrick. She's a genetic counselor. She's a writer, founder of Watershed DNA. Brianne, thanks so much. Really appreciate it because I think it's so relevant to the times right now. And we look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you. Thanks, Fisher. It was great to catch up. And uh, coming up next, we're going to talk about some European sites that are free that might help you out, especially if you've got some Eastern European ancestry. And, you know, we're always trying to find you little tips to help make your research journey into your family discoveries a little bit easier. And McKenna Cooper, who is a researcher and editor with our sponsor, Legacy Tree Genealogists, recently posted a blog. It's a very lengthy title, so just bear with me here. It's the Statistical Accounts of Scotland and Ascent tool for Scottish family history research. That just about took up all your space, didn't it, McKenna? (laughs) It did. (laughs) Well, welcome to Extreme Genes. It's great to have you. And uh, I was really impressed by a couple of things you talked about. And one of them was this statistical accounts of Scotland. I've never gotten involved in that. And we will talk about the link because that thing is really long as well a little bit later on. But tell us about a story that you discovered from this and then what we find on that site. Yeah, so the statistical accounts of Scotland were created all across Scotland by local parish priests in the 1700s and 1800s. And so they have really interesting details of daily life in these little parishes, the main occupations of the people, local sites of interest, and lots of little details you wouldn't normally get about them. Okay. Where your people were from. You made an actual discovery using this site that I thought was really interesting. Yeah. So I was doing some client research, and this person's ancestor was listed as a handloom weaver and also a salmon fisher in various records, which I thought was a little bit unusual to be swapping between those two occupations. Yeah, because you would think that would be two people, right? Right. You would think so. But it was very clear, you know, he had the same wife in these records, but it was the same guy. So I looked up this little town of Newburgh in Fife in Scotland in the statistical accounts. 
And it turns out that the people there were sailors and weavers, both, and they swapped between these occupations depending on how the fishing was going or how the weaving industry was going. Oh, wow. And so the minister wrote this whole thing up about that particular parish. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, he said it was a, a provincial town inhabited chiefly by sailors and weavers, possessed of small properties and nearly on a level with respect to riches. I love the way they wrote back then. That's great. But he said they swapped back and forth between those. So that kind of uh, cleared up any confusion in your mind about who you were looking at, right? Yeah. So it sounds like when the the cloth prices went down, they tended to fish more. Mm -hmm. And then when the fish would go sail off to someplace else, they'd probably do more weaving, right? Yeah, I suppose so. Yep. Maybe if the weather was bad or something. All right. So this is really hard to do, the website for the statistical accounts of Scotland. But I'm going to make an attempt. And I would just say this to anybody listening. You really want to get to the link. You can do it through our website, ExtremeGenes.com. We've got a summary there, of course, with a link to it, as well as the transcript of the show. That will have a link as well. So it is S-T-A-T, as in statistics, A-C-C, as in accounts, S-C-O-T, as in Scotland, and uh, E-D-I-N, as in Edinburgh, and then A, like, I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) S-T-A-T-A-C-C-S-C-O-T-E-D-I-N-A dot A-C dot U-K. That's why we have to have a link (laughs) on the website, because that's impossible. But it is free, right? It is free, and if you just Google Statistical Accounts of Scotland, it comes up. So that might Oh, be well, that's a much easier way. Why did you put me through all that, McKenna? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's, let's do that. Of course. Now, you had uh, another free site that was mentioned in there for European research, and that's a thing called MapHire. And I've, I've mm-hmm. never been to this before, and uh, it's MapHire.eu, M-A-P-I-R-E dot E-U. And it covers mostly, what, the old uh, Hungarian Empire, and then plus some others that are kind of coming along. What's in that? Yeah, so it's a collection of historical maps of Europe, mostly the old Austro-Hungarian Empire, which covers Hungary, Austria, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Slovenia, a lot of those countries. Mm-hmm. And it was created by a lot of the Hungarian archives, but they have also have partnerships with a couple other archives in Europe. And so they have maps from all over historical maps. You know, that is so important. And I I did this recently in researching uh, one of my ancestors over in England. When you are looking for somebody, they're often of the same name. They often share the same time where they were christened. You want to find out where some of these places are into a map that you're associating with. So, for instance, we had a first child born to my ancestral couple in 1805. And then we started looking for, okay, where is a christening for the father 25 years earlier, roughly, and found that there was one just three miles away from the village where his child was christened in 1805. And everything kind of came together from there. So, you know, when you can look at a map and look up some of these places and then start comparing the villages you are aware of that are associated with that family, you can start to figure out whether it makes more sense that they were from nearby or maybe it doesn't work that way at all. I don't know. But that sounds like a great tool. Mapire dot eu m-a-p-i-r-e dot eu and both of these things are free right yes both of them are free what else do you have mckenna so on mapire um there's a collection of cadastral maps which were land use maps um, but they're really cool because they're extremely detailed and so if you can find your village in hungary 
for example. It'll show you where the forest was, even what the buildings were made of. So the brick buildings are in a different color than the stone buildings. And also it includes house numbers and uh, sometimes even names of the tenant farmers. Oh, wow. So if you can find, yeah, if you can find the house number listed in a parish register, you can go find exactly where the house was on the map and even what kind of material it was made of sometimes. Well, that would be so much fun. And, and I think uh, many of us have done this over times where we found the location of where an ancestor lived. And now you can actually go visit that place. And periodically yeah. when you do that, you might find, I remember I went to Germany not long ago and I went to this little village our people were from and I just went down the area where my people lived and there were still folks with the family name on the mailbox from 400 years ago, you know, and it's like, okay, there are people here who are related to that family still. And sometimes you can visit with them and get more information out of them. Yeah, it's super cool. The maps on Mapire are actually geo-referenced. So you can look at it right on top of a modern map and see if your house is still standing as well. Oh, that's incredible. Who's created this thing? The archives in Hungary. They worked with several scientists to create the geo-referencing, but it's all listed on the website. It sounds like it's got a lot of great features there. There's even 3D maps and you can do side-by-side things and there's a lot of... Wow. Do you use this quite often in your research? Because Eastern European research has typically been very challenging, and this sounds like something that could really open the doors for a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm an Eastern European specialist, and a lot of times the the town names have changed between, you know, three different languages. And so um, often if I'm having trouble figuring out where exactly a place was, pulling up a historical map can be really useful to show, you know, especially villages that don't exist anymore, where exactly they were and Mm -hmm. what they were called. Right. Is it often just a name change or is that a village was lost in a war and they rebuilt it and gave it a new name? Uh, Most of the time it's a name change because the regime changed. Mm -hmm. So if the Austrians were in charge, it was in German, but then it reverted back to maybe the Czech side and now it's in Czech and things like that. Right on the borders. Unbelievable. She's mm-hmm. McKenna Cooper. She is a researcher and editor for our friends at Legacy Tree Genealogists. She's telling us about mapire.eu, M-A-P-I-R-E, and the statistical accounts of Scotland, whose website is way too long for us to go over one more time. But like she says, <laughs> Google it. You can find it. It's really useful as well. Hey, great tips and a great story, too, about the guy with the different occupations at different times of the year. It sounds like it's really helpful stuff. I appreciate it, McKenna, and we'll talk to you again sometime. Thank you for having me. And it is time once again for Ask Us Anything on Extreme Genes, America's family history show and ExtremeGenes.com. I am Fisher, your radio root sleuth, with my good friend Melanie McComb from the New England Historic Genealogical Society. She's a staff genealogist there. Welcome back, Melanie. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me back, Fisher. Always a pleasure. And we have uh, an email from Ken in Las Vegas, and he says, I see a reference to a passport number on a ship manifest. Is there any benefit to tracking down their application for the passport? Would it still exist, and how do I find it? Good question, Ken. What do you say, Melanie? Great question, and definitely something that I've come across. So the National Archives here in the U.S., they have worked with Ancestry and Family Search to digitize their passport applications. And these go back actually pretty far. You know, we think about passports being more of a modern form of ID to travel, but they actually were issued back as far as 1795 for this collection. Wow. All the way through 1925. Are they all done yet? 
I think so. I think that they actually finished this collection a few years back. So it's, it's definitely worth taking a look. And a lot of it is already indexed, too. So you can actually search for your ancestor in this collection. The early ones, though, did not have really a lot of information in them, did they? Correct. Right. It's, it's not the later ones where you're going to start seeing more of the photograph and more detailed information on their addresses and where they're going. It's going to be more basic just to capture a form of ID when they're traveling overseas. Mm. I think there's so much great stuff in there. You mentioned the photographs, and I found the only photograph that anybody in our family has ever seen of the brother of my grandfather. And he was working as, I think they call it a scullion. So I learned about a new occupation, which was basically he was just, uh, you know, cleaning the dishes on the ship so he could go overseas. But his photo was on there. It had testimony as to his birth and knowledge of the family because he didn't have a birth certificate. And so we got a little history there. But you'll get full birth dates, birthplaces, relationships, testimonies from other people sometimes. But the photographs starting, I want to say, in the mid-19-teens, 1913, 1914, somewhere in there. And a lot of those are available right now through Ancestry. And are you saying we're going to see those, too, on FamilySearch? Correct. The same collection is also duplicated on FamilySearch, so you can actually search them for free. Uh, even better. That's awesome. Yeah. And there's so much biographical information there. You're right. And I, I recently did a blog post on a more distant cousin of mine, a second cousin three times removed, who was a war veteran that was disabled. He was actually blind. And my great-grandfather accompanied him, and that was noted on the passport applications. Oh, wow. What's also great about the applications is that they even tell you on what ship they're expected to go out on. So then you could go and look for the next passengerless record showing where they're going to and see what else you can find on their journey. Yeah. Wow. So, Melanie, are there other types of uh, ID for international travel that people like Ken might be able to get? Yes. There is also a visa that someone could apply for when they're coming here to the U.S. or going overseas where they're still going through the federal government to get permission to travel. Those are typically going to be handled through the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. They do have a search fee required to conduct the search, but then they could obtain those visas. And these are going to be more recent. So when you start seeing visas start really being issued around, you know, the 1940s, 1950s. So if anybody's looking into their grandparents, there could be other applications. And they do have those on file. Hmm. But they're not online yet anywhere. Correct. Right. Due to the privacy, depending on the country, a lot of our records are going to be after about 1925. That's when they're coming under the purview of the federal government because there could be living individuals involved. Ah, All right. Thanks so much, Ken, for your question. Melanie, what about foreign countries? Now, they must have passport material as well, but I'm not as familiar with information about other countries being online. Anything from Britain or France or Germany or Eastern Europe that you're aware of? Yes, and and there are several that are starting to become digitized and come online as well. So one collection that I like to look at is the Lithuanian internal passports. And what was interesting about this collection here, and these run from 1919 and 1940, these passports were actually used as more of a form of ID when you were traveling within the country rather than traveling overseas. So oh, wow. you had to have on your person if you needed to present it to a police officer or any other government official if they're stopping you. So you're saying that you could actually find indexed references to that. So somebody had a Lithuanian ancestor in that time period, that there might be some information on them there? 
Correct, right. And there's one collection that's available through uh, Ancestry and MyHeritage where they have indexed the information. If you could find the name, you would also see the household number and the passport number that is online. And then you could actually contact the state archives in Lithuania for a copy of the original passport application. Wow. Yeah. What would be on that application potentially? Sometimes they can get into the some vital record information, so on where they were born, some of the makeup of the household, possibly maybe a street address or at least a region within the country that they're living. So it may even be maybe a photograph that you could look for. Wow. So that's definitely something to see what's out there. But, I mean, it's exciting to know that these exist. So I highly recommend if you have anybody over, take a look to see if their passports are available and if there's an index online. All right. Any other countries? Yep. So Romania has added a recent collection. I've even seen ones through countries like Portugal. Portugal has actually added their registers and application files, and they actually go back as far as 1800 through oh, 1946. Wow. Incredible. And what about some of the countries that were involved in World War II? I mean, I know they have a lot of concerns about uh, identification, and we certainly see that bleeding over into the questions about DNA and what you can do and what you can't do there. Are they keeping their old applications pretty tight, or is that that's something that we might be able to see eventually. I think we start to see that over time. We're finding that a lot of the Russian archives are becoming more and more available. So right. I think that they're starting to work with some of the different agencies, either through Family Search or other areas. And what's nice is that even if they just provide us the index, that's actually helping their archives because then we could request it from their archives, they get the revenue from that, and then they could provide the data, and then we can share that that data exists. That's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. What would be in a Russian application? Ooh, good question. I think the Russians actually were very detailed with what they were looking for. What's not included? Yeah. Um, in those <laughs> That's true. It's the, we're talking the Soviet Union days, right? Exactly. Yeah. Even countries like Estonia, any different parts of the Russian Empire, where they're capturing all your vital information, where you live. You know, and then if they are true passports, if someone did leave, they had to get permission from the government to leave. So that could be something else that you might want to look into. Oh, wow. To see if, if they did go overseas, did they keep a file with the government knowing where they went? Great stuff. Thanks so much. And great question, too, from Ken. Uh, inspired a lot of conversation. If you have a question for Ask Us Anything, all you have to do is email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. Melanie, great to have you on again, and we'll chat at you real soon. All right. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Hey, that is it for another week. Talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.